0: The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, If you're a guest or visitor, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here, and it is great to be with you. Uh, And if you are new with us, uh, you're joining us in the midst of a sermon series in the book of Romans, so the New Testament book of Romans, and we're in chapter 5 this morning of Romans, so if you have a Bible you can turn to uh, Romans chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you and we'll project the passage in just a moment. Um, and if you did come here and, and you don't have a Bible and you would like one, please take that one. Uh, it is yours. We won't stop you. No one will ask you. We want you to have it. Uh, that is our gift to you. Uh, we would love for you to have a Bible if you don't have one. So, um, But this morning we're in the book of, uh, in the chapter, uh, chapter 5 of Romans. And if you are with us last week, then you remember that uh, Paul was giving a, a long illustration of what faith looks like. So he used the life of Abraham primarily to demonstrate to us, to show to us what faithful faithfulness looks like in the Christian life. And at the very end of that passage in Romans chapter 4, he concluded by telling us that Jesus has been delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus has been delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Y'all, that's good news. That is very good news because what that tells us is that when we stand before God, when we stand face to face to him, what we stand in is not our own strength, our own abilities, or our own works, but in the work of Christ. That he has justified his people and because of his resurrection, we can stand before the Father. That is good news. Christ by his work has justified us. So in hearing that last week at the end of our passage, maybe the question then that stuck out to us or maybe we walked away from was thinking, "Well, well, what do we do with that? Like, what does that mean for us? How do we respond to the fact that Christ has been delivered up for our justification? He's been raised for our salvation. Well, Romans 5 helps us with that. So follow along, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we simply ask that you would uh, be with us, that you would help us, that you would help us so that we would see the beauty of your word, that You would help us so that we would cling to your grace, that you would help me so that my words would give you glory and honor, and that you would help us all so that we would be attentive to what you have declared in your word. So we ask that you would help us, you would be near to us, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So when I was a child, uh, my father worked for the second largest bank in Canada called CIBC, And he worked at the main headquarters, the national, international headquarters of CIBC in downtown Toronto. Uh, in a part of Toronto called Commerce Court. So Commerce Court is where all the national banks in Canada, are: TD, uh, CIBC, Bank of Montreal, like all these banks I'm sure y'all are familiar with, right? <laughs> no, you've never heard of any of them and that's totally fine. Um, but, but this is where my father worked and we lived in a suburb and he took the train into work every single day. And, and so one of the benefits actually of him working at CIBC in Commerce Court was that uh, it was just a few blocks away from the Skydome. Now, the Skydome is what's now called Rogers Center, and, and what's important about the Skydome is that's where the Toronto Blue Jays played their games. And so, my dad, being uh, working for this uh, large bank uh, and l- working in close proximity to the Skydome, he had the opportunity and privilege of every once in a while having a meeting at the Dome. You see CIBC owned a suite at the Dome and so every once in a while one of his bosses or a higher up would say you know instead of us having a meeting in, a, in our boardroom in one of my offices you know let, let's take the short walk down to the Sky Dome and let's watch the game. These are how he had his meetings. Now, I never got to take part in any of these meetings, unfortunately, <laughs> but but I do remember he told me about one. You see, there was this one meeting where there were these people who had come over from uh, the UK and Europe. They were finance, bankers sort of people, and they were meeting with people at my dad's dad's bank. And since my dad had a, a background in international monetary something or another, he had explained it to me, but I never fully understood what he did, he was invited to participate in this meeting. So there he was at the Sky Dome, surrounded by these Europeans, these Brits, who had no idea what baseball was all about. And so, his meeting was him telling them all about baseball. About pitchers, about catchers, about pitch counts, about home runs, about doubles and double plays and stolen bases and all these sorts of things. And, and over the course of their meeting, they started to learn the basics of baseball. And I remember my dad telling me about how he had to teach them the basics and how they started to understand, but, but the thing he didn't have to teach them was interesting. You see, though they need to learn what a double play was and and what a home run was, they, they didn't need to learn how to celebrate or how to cheer or how to rejoice when a home run took place. You see, when a home run, when the ball went out of the park and landed beyond the outfield wall, they just knew instinctively they were supposed to stand and applaud. And when the pitcher struck out the batter with the bases loaded and two outs, they knew they were supposed to cheer. And when another run came around, they rejoiced. They just knew to do it. No one had to tell them to do it. No one had to tell them to rise to their feet and celebrate and rejoice. They just knew that when something good happened, that's what you do. You rejoice. And we know this, right? I mean no one tells us to celebrate an engagement, to cheer on our team when they win the game, to rejoice at the good medical diagnosis. We, we feel it in our bones, right? It, it, it stirs in our souls, and our hearts. We just can't help but rejoice. It erupts from us, even Presbyterians, <laughs> right? Now, I know we have the reputation of being a little more solemn, a little more stoic. You know, that's a nice way of saying kind of, um, well, I won't say what it's a nice way of saying, but, but, but we do know this rejoicing, don't we? We celebrate with head nods, and every once in a while, a, a, an appreciative mmm, right? That's our form of rejoicing, <laughs> But the truth is, is that even in these muted forms of rejoicing and celebrating, when we experience something good and wonderful, we know we're supposed to rejoice. Right? We, we can't help but do it to feel the warmth build in our hearts and for it to pour out of our lips. We rejoice. And that's what Paul tells us to do three times in this passage. In verses 2, 3, and 11, he tells us to rejoice and we are to rejoice because something wonderful has happened. Something wonderful in our past. So that's our first point. I know there, there, I was told in between services there was no outline. Again, uh, two weeks in a row I mess up the, the bulletin. I'm sorry. But, uh, but the first point is that, that we rejoice in our past. We rejoice in our past. And what is our past marked by? Well, justification. That's what Paul said at the end of chapter 4 in verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to describe our past in verses 6 through 8. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you hear what has happened in our past. Jesus has died to justify us. He has died, given his life to bring us peace. Now, now what that implies is that there wasn't peace. Right? If Jesus had to bring us peace, it implies that there wasn't peace. That that we were those who actually opposed God, and we were rebelling against him, and we were his enemies. Right? That's what verse 6 tells us. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And who are the ungodly? Well, it's us. It's not just those people out there. It's you and me. We are the ungodly that Paul is describing. We are the sinners of verse 8 who were once in, in rebellion against God who are mounting a, a revolt against his good ways. And we're the ones who Christ gave his life for. That is our past. You see, if you are claiming the name of Jesus, and you are clinging to his grace, and you are resting in his work, your past is marked by his justifying work on your behalf. We have been reconciled to God that word is repeated multiple times throughout our passage. We've been reconciled, right? We have been restored, right? There was once a, there was, there was a, a breach in our relationship between the Father and us, right? And we know that this breach is a result of sin, right? In the very beginning, God created Adam and Eve, and they dwelt with him in perfect harmony. They walked in the garden, right? God was present, but they rebelled against that goodness, And we have been in need of reconciliation ever since. And that's what he has done. He's restored us to the relationship that we are in need of, the relationship with the Father. We've been reconciled. That is our past. Jesus has restored us. He's made rebels friends and turned sinners into his people. And he takes the ungodly and makes us saints. Now y'all, we could stop right there and that would be plenty to rejoice over. We could just stop right there. The reality that our sins have been forgiven and Christ has made us alive, right? He took those who were dead and he breathed new life into us. He took old creations and he made them new. We could stop right there and that would be plenty to rejoice over because I have to tell you y'all, if that doesn't stir your soul, nothing will. We could stop right there. But Paul doesn't stop there. See, he doesn't just tell us to rejoice in our past. He also tells us to rejoice in our future. Look at verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So you see, Paul is pointing us to what's to come, the glory of God that's going to be revealed. Right? That's what our future entails. That there is a day coming when we will see God in all of his glory, we will be with him in his presence, and we will dwell with him as his people. It's a future day in which his people will rejoice, not fear. You see, that future day isn't marked by our fear of punishment or judgment. It's marked by rejoicing. Look at verses 9 through 11. that those who have been justified by the blood of Jesus, those whose past is marked by Christ's work on the cross, our future is secure. It's secure. Paul has already in Romans talked about the judgment and justice and wrath of God that is to one day come. And he invokes it again, but he's telling us that those who are trusting in Jesus, we need not fear that day of judgment. We don't have to fear that day of wrath because Jesus has taken that wrath upon himself. See, that is our future. That is our future, a day where we will rejoice because judgment doesn't await us. The fulfillment of salvation does. Enmity isn't our future, peace is. I mean, just think about the language that the Bible often uses to talk about that day when Jesus will return. Right? Like in First John, we will see Jesus as he is and we will be like him because we see him as he is. That, that we will dwell with him. That like Jesus said, I go away to prepare rooms for you right in my father's house. We're going to dwell with him. He's going to be our God and we will be his people. This is the language that the Bible uses to describe this future. And these are words and images of peace, not war. Of reconciliation, not strife that is the future that awaits us. A future that we can rejoice over. You see, our future and our past, they actually set the foundation for our rejoicing in the present. Because of our past and because of our future, we can rejoice in the present. And that's where Paul turns to in verses 3 through 4. He says, not only that, the, that speaking of rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit who has been given to us okay how can paul say this rejoice in our suffering Now, we have to read this very carefully because it'd be very easy for us upon first reading and upon first hearing to think that Paul is saying rejoice because of our suffering. As though um, we are going to be our most happy, our most joyful when we suffer, but that's not what Paul's saying. And that doesn't actually comport with what we see in Scripture, right? Because what we see in Scripture, like when you read through the Psalms, is we see a lot of lament And what is the psalmist doing? The psalmist is crying out to God, right? To remove him from suffering, to remove difficulty, to remove trial. They're not rejoicing because of their suffering. Or think about Jesus in the garden or on the cross. He cried out to the Father in the midst of his trial. He cried out to the Father in the midst of his suffering. No, the the psalmist and Jesus himself, they didn't relish in suffering. Paul's not saying that we rejoice because of our suffering. He says we can rejoice in the midst of it. But how? Well, you see, the reason that we can rejoice even in suffering is because Paul is showing us, as one pastor put it, that suffering starts a chain reaction that leads to hope. Did you see the progression that takes place? Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Suffering produces endurance. It's just the ability, the capacity to bear up under difficulty. And so maybe our minds run to the runner. You know, it, it turns to the runner who's preparing for a marathon, right? Like, m- none of us get up and just decide to run a marathon, right? Like Like, we would... We would fall over at the fifth mile right that would be our suffering (laughs) i mean four miles is kind of suffering but regardless right we you don't get up and just run a marathon you have to prepare for it you have to train for it. you have to build your endurance three five ten twelve miles right so that when you get to mile 17 in the race you know that you can persevere you build your endurance and what paul is saying is that suffering builds spiritual endurance it builds spiritual endurance, right? Because Jesus has said that we are going to face trials and difficulties. That is going to be what we experience in this world. And as we endure through a trial or difficulty, when the next one comes, we, we have a little more endurance to push through. We have a little more endurance to keep moving forward. Suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Right? Character. This is this idea of genuineness or, or testedness. And it's in the midst of trial and difficulty that our heart's condition is often revealed. Because it's in difficult circumstances that we not only see ourselves, but we see who we are trusting in and where we have put our faith. Right? I mean, when when we are faced with suffering, when we're faced with difficulty, who is it that we turn to? Well, who it is that we turn to is often a depiction, is a reflection of who it is that we trust in. You see, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character so that we continue to turn back to the Lord. We continue to put our faith in Him, and character leads to hope. You see, the end of suffering produces hope because even in the midst of suffering and trial, for those whose past and futures are tied to God, we in the present experience his peace and love. That's what we experience in the midst of it. His peace and love. Now, we might think that it's the very opposite. That difficulty means that maybe God is upset with us, right? That's where we often turn trial and difficulties, you know, suffering and pain, we, we easily turn and go, well, God must have been, he must have removed his love from us. He must have removed his presence from us. But, but that's actually not what happens, right? Do you see what Paul said? That's in the difficulty that, that though it may feel like God's love has dried up, instead in verse 5 we're told that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, God's love isn't removed in the midst of difficulty. Instead, the presence of his love is cause for our rejoicing in difficulty. And that's what God has promised, hasn't he? Right? Jesus said that for those whom the Father loves, that we are in his hand, and there is nothing, nothing that can pluck us from it. Right? He holds us even in the midst of trial. Nothing can remove us from it. Or think about the end of Romans 8. I know it's jumping ahead a few chapters, but in the end of Romans 8, Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, and we could add in suffering and trial and difficulty and pain, nothing in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And y'all, don't we know that? I mean, in times of pain, in times of struggle, when we're unsure of the diagnosis that's about to come, when we've lost our job, when we've experienced the tearing of a relationship, the emotional and mental burdens many of us carry. Y'all, hasn't it been in those times that we have experienced God's love and care in incredibly profound ways? In, in deep ways that, that maybe we haven't when, when it seemed like all things were, were great and gold, right? Like in the midst of it, we would never ask for it, and yet at the, the end of it, when we have con- come to the place of hope, can't we look back and see how God has shown his love to his people, See, friends, it's in times of turmoil that we often focus our attention on him and we cry out to him. It's in those times that we learn, as a friend of mine put it, that when the gospel is all we have, we learn that the gospel is all we need. That that is what we need is the love of God, and he shows up with his love in the time of struggle, in the time of suffering and difficulty. Those times drive us back to the gospel. And they cause us to hold fast to the Lord and cause us to go to him and cry out to him. I mean, that's what Paul says in verse 2, right? Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access to the Father because of Jesus' justifying work for us. We have access to the Father. We have been brought into his family and we can approach the Father through Christ. Right? Ephesians chapter 3 tells us we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Hebrews 4 calls us, draw near to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. We can approach the throne room of grace and the Father welcomes us into his presence. Right? God doesn't have office hours, right? God's not looking for you to set up an appointment. We're not left in a waiting room for a 30-second visit. No, because of what Jesus has done, we have 24-hour-a-day, 365-day-a-year access to the king of the universe. And friends, that includes our days of difficulty and our times of turmoil and our seasons of suffering. That's in those times that God invites us, he calls us, he beckons to us, come. And to take all of our fears and all of our worries and all of our doubts and all of our difficulties and cry out to him. Now, y'all, I don't know what you're bearing this morning. As you came in here this morning, I, I, I don't know what is all the things that are weighing on your minds And I don't know what's prompting your cries or keeping you up at night. I know some of them. Some of you know ours. But I do know this. In the present, in the time of suffering, of trial, of difficulty, we're to call out to him. We're to cry out to him. We're to cry out to him and know that his love, it is poured out right? It's, it's not a drop. It's not a sprinkle of love. It's not a ration of love. But, but what did Paul say? His love is poured out through his spirit. That we cry out to him and know that his love is poured out. And when we know that love, we can rejoice. We can rejoice that Christ has given us life. That is our past. And we can rejoice in, the, in what awaits us, the life to come, that is our future. And we can rejoice even in suffering because his love never leaves us. And y'all, that is our present. And so we rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice that even in times of difficulty and, str- and trial, in times of suffering and pain, you do not leave us. You do not forsake us, but instead you shower us with love and care, with mercy and grace. And so I pray, Lord, that every one of us, that we would approach your throne. We would cry out to you in our time of need, and we would know your love, and you would deepen our hope. So, Father, lead us into the throne room of grace, and let us, by the work of Jesus, claim your promises to us that your love will never fail, that your love will never leave us, and that you will be our God and we will be your people. Father, lead us into that place, we pray. And all God's people said together, amen.